0: I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. If you love listening to this show as much as I love hosting it, I think you'll really like the Medal of Honor podcast, produced in partnership with the Medal of Honor Museum. Each episode talks about a genuine American hero and the actions that led to their receiving our nation's highest award for valor. They're just a few minutes each, so if you're looking for a show to fill time between these Warriors episodes, I think you'll love the Medal of Honor podcast search for the Medal of Honor podcast wherever you get your shows. Thanks. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors, in their own words, is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Major James Dunning. Dunning served in the British Army during World War II as a commando and fought in the unsuccessful Dieppe raid in August of 1942. In this first part of his interview, he describes how he became a commando and his engagements leading up to the Dieppe raid.
1: When one looks back from um, being 80 years of age, the reasons for joining that time seem quite trivial. It was in 1937, 1938, when the Munich business was on, and... uh, Also, in the beginning of 1939, conscription was coming in England, and uh, I was working with my father in the family business, and I wasn't all that happy. And uh, one day I thought, I don't know, I've had enough of this. I think I'll uh, join the army. And uh, that's really just how it all happened. Within a few weeks, and, and the great thing was Joining then, I was there to make my own choice. Whereas if I'd waited another six to nine months, I would have been conscripted and had to join up wherever they wanted to put me. So that was really an impulse before the war, with the war clouds coming and frustration in the job and wanting to get away out of a family environment. There we are. And young and foolish, I joined. I wanted to be in, well, I joined an armored car regiment, an armored car regiment. They wanted musicians too, and I was keen to play in the band and that, and so it all worked out very well. But then the war came, and that was the end of the, uh, that type of thing. It was just after Dunkirk, when uh, Britain was alone facing uh, the possibilities of invasion, And having not seen any action, I was then uh, 20 years of age. I was at a training school teaching map reading, and uh, there was a notice for volunteers for a special force. Uh, The details were quite brief, able to swim, able to drive a car and a motorcycle, prepared to parachute, and also willing to be transported in a submarine. And... uh, still young and foolish, I thought, ah, that sounds adventuresome. And uh, away I signed. I was a sergeant by that time, and uh, this seemed to be a good opportunity to get away from uh, uh, the classroom uh, training place I was in, and I volunteered. And it was simple as that. There were no tests or anything. One was just interviewed and either in or out, and I was in. Each troop leader, uh, having been chosen by the CO, was responsible for choosing his own two officers and his own 50 men. And looking back, I think each troop leader had different ideas. But in our particular case, uh, my troop leader, I think, looked for a person who was fit and in conversation probably conveyed that he had the right ideas of being prepared to have a go at anything. Uh, as i said earlier th- it was ironic really because uh, one wasn't tested on any of the military skills that came later and was a disadvantage in many ways as um, as it proved you know that uh, we had to then establish a training center so before the people were drafted in to an operational commando they all had a uh, and acceptable uh, standards of military proficiency and performances. When we volunteered, when I volunteered, the various commandos were set up all around the British uh, the British Isles because one of the things that Churchill laid down, who was the prime architect of uh, commandos, that no units could be spared from the vital task of defending Britain so it was decided that they, they aim at 10 raising 10 commandos of 500 men, and they would be formed in various parts of the British Isles so as not to denude any one area. And so we were formed in the South Coast here, uh, not far from here, about 80 miles from here at Weymouth, in Dorset. And we all must have done the most extraordinary thing. Uh, about the early commandos, they did not have barracks, no barracks. We arrived as volunteers. We were given a ration card because Britain, of course, all food was rationed, and an allowance of six shillings and eight pence, that's about 33 pence per day, and told, go and find somewhere to live. It's your responsibility to feed and water yourself And as long as you're on parade at the right place at the right time tomorrow, no questions were asked. So that was the starting point. And then the initial training was mainly to get fit, physically fit. Uh, The routine started with uh, At Weymouth. It was a lovely time of the year. July, beautiful summer of 1940. Uh, clear blue skies most days. Uh, right on the coast, wanted to go swimming. And half past six every morning while we are at Weymouth, a, a PT parade, an early morning swim. And then back to our chosen billets for breakfast. And then the morning was spent on weapon training, rifle, brand gun, bayonet fighting, and uh, weapon drills, and uh, combined with route marches. And uh, uh, map reading, and so on, and right from the uh, first or second week, we started training for night operations. The blackout was on in Britain in wartime Britain, so that, and then there were raids, attack and searchlights, which gave a uh, atmosphere of realism for uh, training of uh, the type we were uh, proposing to put into action, Uh, most veterans will look back and they will say without any shadow of doubt that their most arduous and mentally taxing uh, pieces of the training were the speed marches. And it was not so much, well, just as much physical but uh, equally mental. You've got to make that mental barrier when you go on when the flesh is uh, inclined to give in. Some mental things in the mind, and that was the toughest part. Speed mark. Uh, looking back the, f- the first few months, no, I think most people, most people found it uh, progressively acceptable. But those who couldn't make the grade, without any compunction, were returned to their own unit, whether it be infantry, tanks, artillery, or whatever. And that was a great thing throughout all commandos the RTU system, return to unit. If a person was physically unable or mentally unable or a whinger, a moaner, and didn't fit in with the team, he was, without any uh, redress whatsoever, RTU'd. We were the first people after Dunkirk to get the uh, uh, United States Thompson submachine gun which we had previously only seen in James Cagney films and Edward G. Robinson. Uh, and uh, they had a tremendous impact on the weapon training because being a short-range carbine, it fundamentally fired from the hip and in small bursts. And uh, once we got those, we said to uh, ourselves, right, we fired this weapon from the hip, why can't we find fire of a light machine gun from the hit the Bren gun or the rifle? And that all fitted in with the development of aggressive, offensive methods of fighting because previously a lot of the weapon training had been done on what you might call World War I and Ball War, War style of training, adapt a nice firing position on the ground, everything fine. And it wasn't really geared for modern warfare, where you had to fire your weapon under all circumstances and from all positions. A gun was a light machine gun, which had been invented in Czechoslovakia in the mid-30s and was adopted by the British Army in the late 30s as the standard infantry, like machine gun, to replace the old Maxim, and in between the rifle and the Vickers machine gun. Uh, so basically we had just the basic infantry small arms, rifle, ring gun, tommy gun, and a variety of grenades. Later on, when the role of commandos was altered, we uh, had heavier weapons, First of all, it was a two-inch mortar, and then the three-inch mortar and the Vickers machine gun. I have admitted one very cumbersome weapon which we had, and that was known as the Boy's anti-tank rifle, a very unpopular weapon. Heavy, fired a uh, armor-piercing uh, round, uh, had a kick like a mule, The actual gun was bolt operated and uh, it was very useful for light against light tanks, but mainly used against uh, emplacements and pillboxes and that. And that was eventually replaced by a Piat, which was a a projectile which uh, fired a shell, which a hollow charge, which punched a hole into a a tank or an emplacement. The and Sykes, uh, they're amazing characters. Fairborn and Sykes, two Shanghai policemen. Uh, they came back. They were quite middle aged men. We thought they were quite old. And they came to a place called Loch Islet, which was the forerunner of Achnacurry and uh, up in the Highlands. Uh, Loch Islet was started uh, almost by accident. Uh, Loch Islet was the first special training centre in Britain. And it came, as I say, almost by accident, in as much as in late 1939, 40, the Russians had invaded Finland, and the British government decided to send a small token force to help the Finns. And so they called for people who could ski. And uh, as one would expect, most of the people that could ski were people who had the means to go steam before the war, which was very limited. And as a number of, well, some several hundred people volunteered, but they were mainly officers. And uh, they were, uh, unless they were a regular officer, they had to relinquish their wartime commission. But anyway, they got together, sent to the south of France, trained with the uh, Alpine chasseurs, the French mountain troops, and then they came back. And when they came back, unfortunately, by that time, the Finns had capitulated and there was no need. And among these people that had volunteered were some very adventuresome types. There were two brothers called the Sterling Brothers, uh, one who became the founder, well, he became commando, and then the founder of the SAS and other characters like that. And they decided that they would spend their leave up in Scotland at one of the lodges of the Stirling Brothers in the Highlands. While they were there, they had what you might call an ear in the corridors of power, and they decided they'd try and get a private army to do a raid in Norway. And uh, they set off. They did get the submarine, but it broke down and they came back. And when they came back, they said, well, we must get together and start a special training center. And that's how Lockheilet was started. And among the people they got very quickly were these two ex-Shanghai policemen, Al-Fairbent and Sykes, who had started the Shanghai Riot Squad, and they introduced unarmed combat, close quarter combat, to the British Army. And also introduce the famous uh, F.S. fighting knife, uh, which is uh, here today. I went to Islet and did a demolition course under a, a man called Mad Mike Calvert, who would claim to teach you to blow up everything from a brigadier to a battleship. And so, but while I was up there doing my demolition course, I had sight of and rub shoulders with people who were doing that particular course as opposed to my course on demolitions. Mad Mike Calvert, he was a sapper, a, a rural engineer, and he was a qualified uh, uh, explosive expert, and he taught um, explosives until after the Lockheed like got established, a lot of instructors like Stirling, um, when the commandos were formed, because the Lock Islet was formed before the commandos, but only a few months. They got established, and some of them, like the Sterling Brothers, Lord Lovett was up there, he taught field craft, and uh, they uh, decided to volunteer for commandos. And uh, Mad Mike, he didn't initially, he kept on uh, teaching demolitions and then they decided they wanted some of these uh, uh, irregular warfare expert uh, tutors to go to the Far East to help with Wingate and the Chindits. And My- Mad Mike then left Britain, left Islet, and went over to the Far East and became a uh, commander of one of the columns of Wingate's first expedition in the jungle. But he was a mad character. And hence his nickname, Mad Mike. F.S. Knife was a fighting knife invented by Fairburn and Sykes, nicely balanced. It became and still is the emblem of the commandos. The Royal Marine commandos of today have their shoulder thing of fighting knife. Uh, and uh, Fairburn and Sykes taught one how to uh, handle the knife. I would say it was re- very rarely used in uh, action, but um, it was one of those things which inculcated the right fighting offensive spirit, which was possibly lacking in the, wartime, in the peacetime army. One of the great moments that I always have is that the peacetime army in Britain, of which I only saw the last few months, taught Dot One Fit, fit to play games and rugby and tug-of-war, cross-country, but not fit to fight. I'll give you an example of that. Um, when we first started in commando, uh, uh, the private driver or sergeant would say, right, get ready for PT. And people would change into shorts and a singlet and brown canvas shoes to do PT as though they were at school. And that was wrong. We said, no, this is ridiculous. You want to do PT? in your battle dress, your boots. Not have Indian clubs for arm exercises. Use your rifle and so on. And uh, that was another example of uh, bringing up to date and getting uh, chaps to think in terms of preparing to fight as they have to fight. And Fairbairn and Sykes brought that in. They said, You'll, be un- you- you'll-, you'll probably end up without any weapons sometime. You've either got to disarm your en- uh, enemy or know how to uh, uh, either kill him or main him or put him out of action without a weapon. And therefore, you look around, what you have got? You've got boots on your feet, you know, to use. You've got- you can use your hand in a certain way and so on. And this is all part of uh, creating that uh, spirit, that offensive spirit, which became known as the commander spirit. His Sykes was the judo expert, uh, but both had got what was called the black belt in judo. And I think one of them, I can't, without looking at the record, Fairburn possibly was the first foreigner outside Japan that had a black belt. The original ones, the chaps that joined up in 40, it was an ongoing thing. We were being prepared for operations while we were still really training. And as a result, the earliest raids weren't successful. They were good propaganda because people did land on uh, the enemy coastline, but they weren't really successful. It was a different... um, Feeling, I should imagine, later on when the training center was uh, established and there was a course of six weeks to go through to get your Green Berry. Because initially, until the first two years from 1940 to 42, we didn't have a Green Berry. We all wore our own regimental headdress, whatever it was a tam o' shanter of a Scottish regiment, a four and a half cap in the cavalry. Blackberry for tank people and so on. So for us in the early days, we were in commandos, and so it was just ongoing. We didn't feel really any different after that training than we did initially, but we knew we were better, whereas from 42 onwards, the chaps that came in had to go through the basic training and weren't a commando until they passed that.
2: And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of
3: history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates.
1: Well, the first big one we went on was successful, the Foton Island ones. The Boulogne one, uh, it started off badly. We were towing some landing craft across the channel from Dover, and I think it was three of them. And in sea troop, we had two chaps in the landing craft, and it got awashed going over and subsequently sunk. And as a result... Um, the guys in that uh, landing craft were drowned. But there were only two. It has been said by someone, and I've heard that it had been reported at, in a recording at the Imperial War Museum, that there could have been as many as 30. But that is not true. I was a sergeant major, second in command of the LCA, which would have been loaded, and we lost just the two, no more. I can remember their names, Crump and Hoodless. Anyway, we did land there. Our particular role was to um, create a beachhead, and so that was our main task. The other troop that landed, B Troop, had uh, a variety of uh, objectives to catch a prisoner, and they had with them some experts who wanted to examine a certain installation or a type of uh, uh, defences of this installation, uh, but I personally was not involved in that. It wasn't a spectacular raid like the Fulton raid where you saw positive results, but it's certainly, uh, according to the CO and his report, uh, successful in a limited way. But it was unsuccessful in as much as uh, we didn't uh, use the right techniques for taking our landing craft across in the first Attempt. The idea uh, behind the, uh, the system was to have no tail, no administrative tail. Every infantry battalion, to keep the battalion uh, on the road, as it were, has to have cooks, orderlies, has to have guards and all that sort of thing. Well, if you have a system whereby you give um, the soldiers... Or, or lower of people in the unit, a ration card and some money to find their own billets, especially as all the commanders except one were founded in seaside results for two reasons. One, you had access to the sea, and often small boats, fishing boats or small craft to practice seamanship, and B, you had availability of lodgings and places like that, which weren't being used because of the war, but would be available for billeting soldiers and landladies, accustomed to providing breakfast and an evening meal for their seaside visitors. So that was fine, and that worked very well. Because we got six shillings and eightpence, which was a third of a pound sterling, uh, other units, other people often thought outside commanders that it was extra pay, but it wasn't. That was for our subsistence. So that myth had to be exploded uh, later on during the war. Uh, It worked very well. It meant that unlike an infantry battalion, you had 100% of your men available for training. And Colonel Darby of the U.S. Rangers, when after they had come over to Britain... Uh, in '42, uh, they had gone to Arachnacarie, which was followed on after La and had to marry up with one commando to prepare for the North African landing. And Colonel Darby's on record as saying it was a tremendous boost to the morale of his men. And for the first time, he had all his cooks and other batmen and all those sort of things out training because they had a ration card and he had 100%. And he said it was tremendous. And it gave the men a lot of initiative. Instead of being embarrassed and told to get on parade in 10 minutes' time and this and that, they had to do it for themselves, they had to think about it where they were going to be, what equipment they were going to take. And so it stimulated initiative. To be able to react, to any given situation within the framework of the main aim to destroy the enemy. Compatible with self-sufficient was the need for each individual to be part of a team. And the smallest denominator for the team was two. So we introduced what was called me and my pal, which I think Americans later called me and my buddy, and then the two became a self-contained unit. And invariably, they shared the billet together. If they were uh, on the Bren gun, they were automatically the number one and the number two. And the mortar, number one and number two. So to go back to your original thing, self-sufficient, able to cope with a situation Uh, and respond to a situation with full confidence. Confidence in the order that's given, because there has to be a mutual respect and uh, loyalty between the leader of whatever rank, whether it's from the officer, down to the section sergeant, to the uh, Lance corporal in charge of a little group, and uh, to have that trust and mutual respect, which came through... Uh, all the various aspects of training where leadership at all its levels came out, like mountaineering, rock climbing, a a dicey situation in the water, and so on. It developed in training and was probably more applicable in training because uh, when you did a raid and came back and then trained again, uh, you had chance to uh, uh, cement any losses. But when the commandos, like in Normandy, where they were in the line for 90 days, the system, uh, to a degree, broke down because one might get killed and then uh, your buddy had gone, you see. So you then have to try and get another link. And possibly you became one of three or something like that. So it was an ideal situation Uh Mainly uh, in, uh, for the purpose of training, but it did stand the test of action. But it was liable to be broken up, and of course it could have. If you were very devoted to your buddy on power, and you lost him, it could really tear a hole in here. And so there, there was a danger there, but that was met by you. Would another couple would say, "Well, we looked after old George. You know, he's left old lost Fred." we are have him with us, you know, and then the reinforcement would come in and heal the gap. Oddly enough, in commanders in particular, we often used to find that a bloody good soldier that is a little bit bulshy, and you know, is always moaning, we'd often, especially in C I remember quite a few in George would know them, we'd say, I'll tell you what we'll do, we'll give him a stripe, make him a lance corporal, give him some responsibility. And then instead of being a whiner and a moaner, he had to pass on the orders and he'd explain why it was necessary. And I can think of two chaps in particular who could have been a bit of a nuisance. And we gave them stripes, gave them a bit of responsibility and they reacted and it did the trick. Initially, the concept of commando raids were small raids. Chap in charge of overall charge of small, of uh, commandos was a great buddy of Winston Churchill, who'd been a a great leader in World War One, towards Roger Keys. He, towards the end of forty, um, he had the idea that we should go for bigger raids, and he got the, uh, uh, the year of Churchill, and they planned, while we were all up in Scotland, a big raid in the Mediterranean to capture an island called Pantateria in the Mediterranean, which would be used as a base to uh, operate against the Italians' supplying North Africa. In the event, it was cancelled, although the commanders were sent out there, and that's another story. Following on that, the chiefs of staff and the economic advisor decided that there would be a big raid, in Norway, Because the Germans who were occupying Norway had developed uh, factories in the north of Norway where they were converting uh, fish oil, cod oil, into a component for nitrolycerine uh, for explosives and sending it back to Germany. So it decided to carry out a big raid, two commandos, number three and number four to the islands of Lofoten, up one into the Arctic Circle, and uh, destroy these factories and the fishing fleet which were uh, uh, producing this substitute for nitroglycerine. So off we went. Uh, We stayed at Scapa, We had detailed plans. I was then a sergeant in uh, uh, um, F Troop. And we had a specific task. I had to land with my little group, and I had a house to go to and to get at a chap who was the manager of a little factory, and he would take us into the factory, and we would destroy everything in there. And all of us had tasks like that. Another troop had to go and surround a little barracks where the Germans were located, and uh, either capture or destroy them. And so the landing, which uh, was up the field, was carried out with complete surprise. We were all dreading it, well, not dreading it, but apprehensive that we'd be shot up going in, but we weren't. We got in with complete surprise. And the uh, whole raid, it sounds almost fantastic. We destroyed something like. Uh, 16 or 17 factories, when I say factories, they were small units, uh, not great big things like you're used to in the States, factory, but they were producing uh, this oil, and it was stored in great tanks, and we destroyed something like 800,000 gallons of this oil. Uh, we sunk uh, with explosives and uh, depth charges something like 18 ships uh, we captured 200 uh, odd German prisoners, and we brought back 300 Norwegians without one single loss. There was only one person injured, and that was an officer who shot himself in his leg, taking the holster out from a leg holster. It was a fantastic achievement, and is often uh, decried because it, it there was no fighting, hardly. The, the group that captured the main group of uh, German prisoners got to this uh, uh, small barracks where there were over 100 and they surrounded it and it was just before their reveille, and they, had, they knew that they had uh, a sort of parade, first thing, and they waited until they paraded before they fired and the Germans had no weapons with them. They weren't expecting... It was the most extraordinary the success story of that which because it was no battle has often just been neglected so that was the Lofoten Islands and tr- of course it was a great boost of morale back here bring back 200 odd prisoners see them landing you know in, in uh, Strapoplow because it was a time in uh, March 1941 uh, when there was heavy blitz in London so it was a, 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 a good morale booster. That was Major James Dunning. Next time on
0: Warriors In Their Own Words, he'll describe the infamous Dieppe raid and how he became an instructor at the Akhnekeri Castle. To learn more about Dunning and his experiences, check out his book, The Fighting Fourth. The link is in the show description. Thanks for listening to Warriors In Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at Team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rule Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloia, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words.
1: Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged